So I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. At least 30% of what I teach and preach is wrong. But I don't know what 30% it is. And in today's sermon, um, I'm going to be talking about some topics that are a little bit off the beaten path. Um, So if you have questions, please write them down. Um, After today's sermon, we're going to have a Google Hangout uh, that I will be on, and we can talk about anything uh, related to today's uh, service or sermon. Um, We want to have uh, as good an opportunity to understand this stuff as possible, Um, and we're going to to provide that after today's sermon. Um, So please be taking notes. If there's something that I say that doesn't sound right or you haven't heard before or is confusing, uh, write it down. Um, Come to the Google Hangout, and uh, hopefully we can go a little deeper and, and learn from one another. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian music festival down in Kentucky. And while I was there, I was perusing one of the merchandise tents. And one of the booths was this evangelism group that was giving away Gospel of John's. And I had a conversation with the guy working in the booth, and he was saying, oh man, here's the deal. When when you share your faith with somebody and, and they're ready to accept Jesus as, as their Savior, you slap this Gospel of John in their hand, you say, read it from cover to cover. I said, well, okay, that, that makes sense. Yeah, give me one of those. So I took the Gospel of John and I took it back to our campsite and I began reading. And I read these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I then closed the Gospel of John and decided that night I would never encourage a brand new Christian to read the Gospel of John. Because two verses in, I have no idea what's going on. In the beginning was the word. Which word? Is this a word that I'm allowed to say in front of my grandma? As 21st century Americans, this is a really strange phrase and a really peculiar way to open the gospel narrative. Because we, as part of our cultural vernacular, don't talk about the divine logos. Exactly. You're looking around the room at each other saying, what's the divine logos? I get it. Like, this is not part of, this This isn't something we talk about. But the divine logos is this idea from Greek philosophy that, that God has an agent in the world who orders creation and animates creation And this being is the divine Logos. And this is the word that John is using to open up his gospel. In the beginning was the divine Logos, and the divine Logos was with God, and the divine Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
John would go on to say that, that the Logos would take on flesh and dwell among us. John is making a very specific claim about who Jesus is. Not just what Jesus will go on to do, but who Jesus is. And not just in his function as the Messiah of Israel, but who Jesus is for all of creation. John is saying that, that Jesus animates and creates and is, is living out the will of God throughout all of the created order. This is a massive claim to be making. And it's a claim that if we fail to, to begin to wrap our heads around, a lot of the way that Jesus talks during the Gospels, a lot of what John wants us to see Jesus accomplishing in the world, we're going to miss. Because not only is Jesus the Messiah of Israel, Jesus is also the Logos of Greek philosophy. He is the, the reasoned agent creating and animating all of creation. And not only that, he's going to take on flesh and dwell among us. Continuing on with chapter 1 of the book of John. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, C.S. Lewis used to have an image that he would share with people when he taught about God's relationship to humanity and the Father's relationship to the Son. He used a chalkboard. We're going to use a whiteboard. But it's the same basic idea. So let's, for a minute, imagine that this chalkboard is God's experience of space-time. And on this whiteboard, there's a line. And this line is all of human history. The first thing we need to understand is that all of human history exists within God. God is not bound by time or space, but time or space exists within God. Some here, somewhere here in the course of human existence, Jesus was born. And a mistake that Lewis would uh, share with people who was teaching, he would say, a mistake that's often made is that we assume that this event changes God. That this changes Jesus. That, that Jesus is something else before he's fully human born to the Virgin Mary. It's another mistake to assume 
that at his death, Jesus changes again, that he's somehow something other than fully human, born of the Virgin Mary. But instead, the proper sort of view of, of Jesus within human history is that Jesus has always been God incarnate. Jesus has always taken on human flesh. Jesus is, and this, this gets back to the idea of the divine logos, that, that Jesus has always lived in such a way that he is continually living out the will of the Father. Uh, Lewis used to say that, that what we are truly learning in the incarnation is the very nature of God. Uh, for God to be born an infant is not somehow out of character. Uh, even for, for God to die a slave's death is not somehow out of character. This is who God has always been eternally. That the relationship of the Father and the Son has always been one where the Son lives and moves and whose power and being is in living out the will of the Father. And the Father has eternally desired to glorify the Son. You know, the thing about Jesus that really separates him from every other divine character in every religious tradition across the world is that Jesus really is human. In, in Greek mythology, Zeus may take on a human form to come down to earth and do naughty things with humans, but he's still Zeus, you know, thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Galileo! No Galileo. He still Zeus. He still has the, the power of his godness. He still has the power of his divinity. You, you go in and you look at uh, uh, Hinduism and, and some of the, the, the divine expressions that, that show up in that religion. And they still have this, this, uh, this power that is extraordinary and extra-human. But the Gospel of John tells us that even in doing miracles, Jesus is being fully sustained by the Father. Uh, John makes it really clear, Jesus has no special power on his own. But he is continually living a life in submission to the will of the Father and being uh, strengthened and empowered to do miracles because they're the Father's will. Uh, John would categorize the miracles of Jesus in the same sort of category as the miracles that we see performed through Moses during the Exodus. It's not that Moses has the power to part the Red Sea. 
It's that God's power flows through Moses to part the Red Sea. And in the Gospel of John, it's not that Jesus has the power to heal the leper. It's that the power of the Father flows through Jesus to heal the leper and the man born blind and the, the, the woman who has, who has demon possession. And this is an important distinction to make because it, it reveals another truth about how God exists in the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That there isn't a tension there. It's not uh, this, this power struggle between the Father and the Son to be, you know, the top of the totem God. But that eternally, the Son submits to the will of the Father. And that eternally, the Father's goal is to glorify the Son. It's, it's mutual submission. It is, it's, it is this eternal desire for the joy and the betterment of the other. It's, it's the eternal decision to empty oneself of selfish ambition and selfish desire and to bless the other. The incarnation, the birth of Jesus, reveals the truth about who God is. God is one who is eternally submitting to creation. Who is eternally limiting God's self in order to know us. That, that there's something instead of nothing... Because this relationship that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have together, where they are in, in this, this, this mutual submission to one another, that their desire is to invite us into that, into that relationship, into that world, into, into that, that dimension in that universe. Jesus reveals the full truth of who God is. Now, we may be tempted to ask the question, why does any of this matter? Uh, why does it matter Jesus' relationship to the cosmos? What, why does it matter the Father's relationship to the Son? What does any of this matter to me living in Ohio in the 21st century? And that's a fair question. Because it's, it's not just an academic exercise. Right? The, the Christian life, it's not just having some perspective about the way the world works. I mean, we truly do believe that, that God transforms us so that we live a life that is closer to the original design. And in so doing, it's a life that's more satisfying and joyful 
and all around better. And I think there's something really important for us to be picking up here in having this understanding on the way the Father relates to the Son and the way the Son relates to the Father. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus is fully human. He's not faking it. He's not Zeus. You know, just sort of taking on human form. Jesus doesn't have special powers. He is fully human. And not only that, he is living every moment of every day of his life, not just the 33 years that he walked incarnate among us, but for all of eternity, Jesus is living every moment of his life dependent on the Father, submitting to the Father. His life and his will and his being are in service to the Father. And if this is true for Jesus, that everything good that he was able to do in his life, that, that, that all of his power over temptation, all of his victory over sin, that all of this came from living in a moment-by-moment -moment submissive state to the Father. Then you know that might be what we should try to. Because in the words of uh, Dr. Phil, what we've been trying to do living in our own power, it's not really working for us. But Jesus has given us the blueprint. He's given us the example. He's shown us what it looks like to live in constant submission to the Father. He's shown us what it looks like to live the fullest human experience, the best human experience, the one that will truly transform our lives from the selfishness and the pain and the discouragement that we may face on a daily basis into sharing life with God. Here at Trinity, we talk about the, the daily decision to give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. It's a decision to be obedient. It's a decision to not make decisions in our own power, but to rely on God being at work in our lives. You know, I think sometimes we fall prey to paralysis by analysis. We'll get this idea 
that we think might be a good one, might be the kind of idea that, uh, that, that may even be an idea that God has placed within us, you know, a calling. And we think about it, and we start doing the cost-benefit analysis. And we'll talk to people about it. And sometimes we'll just talk ourselves right out of it. And it'll be precisely what God has called us to in the moment. We see Jesus in the Gospels getting away and entering into times of prayer. And we too would be wise to learn when we have these harebrained ideas, these sparks of a thought, this, these possible callings, instead of doing the advanced calculus of trying to decide if it makes sense, of trying to decide if it's uh, the best thing to do, sometimes what we really should do is pray, and if we have peace, just do it. We don't need a master plan. Sometimes we start doing it and then we figure it out as we go. Which is hard and scary. But it might just be what we're called to. You know, I, I hear stories of, of how folks from Trinity are making a difference in the lives of others. And um, none of them come out of strategic planning meetings. It'll be, you know, I was talking to my wife or my husband and this idea popped into my head and we prayed about it and we did it and that's it. And you know, sometimes you need extra help and extra funding and extra people to get on board with you and, and you know, that, that'll take a little bit more, but you know, the decision to bless somebody to make a difference in their lives, to reach out, to, to share the goodness of Christ. That's not one we have to do that much cost-benefit analysis on. When we have these moments of divine inspiration, we pray and we do. We don't talk ourselves out of it. Just pray and do. I mean, that was the example of Christ. When, when God called Jesus into something, you didn't see Jesus go into the corner and pull out his abacus and start, you know, counting the, uh, you know, the dollars and cents of it. He just prayed about it and did it. And my hope for us is that in this season of uncertainty, that we would become people who learn how to more and more be prayers and doers. That as God speaks to us, 
we would certainly pray. We would certainly ask for wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't have peace about it, we don't push it. But that when God puts an idea in our heart, a way to bless someone, a way to share uh, the love of God with, with someone who's hurting, that we pray about it, and if we have peace, we do it. That's my prayer for us. Because that's the way that we will experience more and more of God in this season. And now, may our Lord Jesus Christ go near you to defend you, go before you to guide you, go behind you to forgive you, go above you to bless you, and live within you so you may love one another. He lives and he reigns with the Holy Spirit and the Father, one God now and even forevermore. Amen.